Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health foreign policy. This episode was recorded on September 13, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, Professor of Law at Indiana University, Indianapolis. My special co-host is Rachel Rabouche from Temple Law School in Philadelphia. She serves as a Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Research. She teaches family law, healthcare law, and contracts. Is currently a co-investigator on two grant-funded research projects related to reproductive health. Rachel, you were on the show a couple of weeks ago. Why now? are we in a basement conference room uh, with with three colleagues? Have you? No. Uh, we, are at, we are at Temple University School of Law in the Schusterman Hall because we are celebrating the Center for Public Health Law Research 10th anniversary. It's a birthday celebration, 10 Yay. years. Happy birthday, public, Scott. Happy birthday, Scott. Happy birthday, Lindsay and Heidi and all the rest. And so we are celebrating the center with a, a symposium that covers a number of issues that I think are uh, guests we'll talk about today, uh, from reproductive health to city-level interventions, social determinants, housing, drug law, and the like. So thank you for dedicating a podcast to this event. Perhaps just before we, we, we start going around the table, people today have been talking about using public health research techniques or legal epi techniques. What, what sort of, how would you characterize those? What, what ties all this together? Well, I think that the, the, so the theme of the conference and the theme of this symposium is legal epidemiology, 10 years of legal epidemiology. And I think that what ties together the various topics that I just mentioned is using research to figure out what policy is doing, what are its health effects, and and surveying policy in order to understand what health consequences uh, result. And so in my area of reproductive health, we just spent our panel's time thinking about how our research could help target certain policies or interventions that would be more effective than not in improving certain populations' health. And so I'm working on a project that's based in the southeast, and we're using legal epidemiology for those ends. Uh, For the center more broadly, Law Atlas has been a key tool in legal epidemiology and the software developed by the center, the monocle. Those of you who know Scott, know why it's called the the monocle uh, to do policy surveillance on a on a broader and level and for those of our listeners who don't know what law atlas is or where to find it the center for public health law research website uh, and you can also google law atlas and you will be taken to a very accessible site that describes how, uh, the Law Atlas technology and approach. Excellent. Next around the table. Uh, so thanks, Nicholas, for inviting me to uh, this podcast today and for uh, putting this crew of scholars together. So my name is Jennifer Caris Montes. I am a professor of sociology and co-director of the Policy Place and Population Health Lab at Syracuse University. So as a, both a sociologist and demographer, my work focuses on uh, life expectancy trends and inequalities in the U.S., and the ways in which uh, the diverging policy environment across U.S. states has contributed to those trends and inequalities. Hi, I'm Evan Anderson. I'm delighted to be here today on the pod. I'm a huge fan of the show. Thanks, Nicholas, for inviting me. Um, I actually have a kind of interesting perspective on the PHLR program because I was there at the very beginning. I I had uh, gone to law school at, at Temple, and I had gone off to Hopkins for a couple years after that. And uh, then I came back to be the senior fellow in the program. And I saw some of these things like legal epidemiology very much from the start. I 
an interest in computer science and database theory. Uh, so I actually have some of the, the prototypes still, still on my machines, which is sort of funny in, in some respects. Um, I ended up getting a PhD in public health, and I now teach health policy and public health law um, across town at the University of Pennsylvania. And a big welcome back to a, almost a pod regular. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Wendy Parmet. I teach at Northeastern University School of Law, and I am the faculty director for our Center on Health Policy and Law. And I really want to thank you, Nick, for inviting me back, and Rachel and um, Temple. It's really a thrill to be back here and to celebrate. Um, I was on the uh, advisory board for many years at the beginning, and so it's just an absolute thrill to be back and to see and follow the amazing work that's been done here. Um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about an area that I've spent a lot of time on in the last few years, which is immigration laws impact on health. I have been thinking about immigration law as, in a sense, an adverse social determinant of health. And I want to talk about the many different ways, but focus on four different ways about which immigration law adversely impacts health and what we know, where we have the legal epidemiology, and some areas where we really need to know a lot more. So why don't you start off, Wendy, with a, a little more uh, detail on that? So I, I guess I want to start from, I think, in public debates, we often think about immigration and health law as two very separate domains, but they intersect in many complicated and increasingly problematic ways. And I'm going to just want to focus on four different ways that I think immigration law, particularly as currently constituted, impacts health adversely. Um, First, in a sense, the direct impact to immigrants through certain policies. You know, think about the pictures of children in cages. I don't think I have to say a whole lot more at the moment about that. But there are a lot of different ways that are immigration laws and are adversely impacting the health of migrants, but also their families and their communities, and in a sense, the ripple effects. Um, Secondly, immigration law creates enormous barriers to health care. Health care is not the same, right, as population health, but it is a social determinant of health. And so I want to think about a lot of ways that that's going on and actually some proposals and policies that are making that worse. The third is that immigration law actually harms health by erecting barriers to other social determinants of health, keeping, for example, populations from getting SNAP, right, participating in SNAP, housing instability, employment instability. Immigration law impacts all of these areas. Um, And I think we need a lot more research here, but um, I think we have, you know, sound reason to believe that these are adverse impacts. And then the last area um, that I'm actually particularly interested in now where I think we need a lot more research is on how immigration law um, affects health through its impact on our political system. And through its, in a sense, it is a wedge issue that is perhaps playing out a role in but augmenting a politics of tribalism that I think is interfering with or impeding our ability to redress social determinants through other means. 
And in a sense, as we begin to have a politics of us versus them, then how do we deal with housing problems? How do we deal with other inequalities? How do we deal with environmental justice? Right? Immigration law, in a sense, distorts those questions. So I actually forgot in my introduction to, to preview what I was going to talk about. So, um, you know, most of my research uh, these days is is you know a little far afield from the legal epidemiology that I, that I used to do. Uh, I'm evaluating city, the city of Philadelphia's police-assisted diversion program, and I do similar work uh, of that sort where I do qualitative research with uh, people who inject drugs. But I, I do kind of cherish the opportunity to talk a little bit about the legal FB work because I'm here and it's, it's always interested me. So, you know, one little project I want to talk about is sort of a possible extension of um, the policy surveillance model. So I've always been interested in this idea about how problems get constructed and defined and dialogue. One thing that you might notice, if you, I think we all know this, right, if you just read the health code, you see um, a lot of the laws are named after people. There's Jenny's law, Mark's law. Aaron's law. Yeah, sure, right? Um, this is sort of a core way that we, that we define problems, right? I've always wondered, though, um, what those names sort of say about the way laws are defined. So, um, you know, utilizing some of the policy surveillance methods, I wrote some code to extract all of the health laws I could find uh, that were named, about 500 of those. And then, uh, you know, we wanted to understand, I wanted to understand, well, what are the characteristics of those people? I didn't want to, to guess, it would have been inappropriate and unethical to guess at their, at their gender or race and ethnicity, but there is code that can do that. So we, um, we modeled their names, and using their names in their places, we modeled their probabilistic genders and, and uh, race and ethnicity. And then we used software to pull out what the laws were about. And we looked and we tried to see, well, were laws, public health laws that were targeting swimming, did they reflect the prevalence of harms that you would see demographically in the country? Mm. Um, drowning is actually a, a problem that's concentrated really um, severely among uh, children of color. Right? When we looked, we didn't see that the laws reflected that. We saw that the laws were mostly named after uh, white children, uh, predominantly uh, women. We did this with violence, we did this with other, other sorts as well. So that's just a fun sort of legal epi project that I'm interested in, sort of utilizing the availability of, of algorithms and database theory to surveil laws and then maybe say things. Jennifer, your background and interests are perhaps the the most difficult for me to get my small legal brain around. How does how does your area of social science fit into this puzzle? I find it fascinating. Well, we don't fit into this puzzle very well, so I'm hoping to to change that. the The issue that I am very troubled by is the the current state of life expectancy in the U.S. So the U.S. currently ranks 43rd in the world uh, in terms of life expectancy at birth. So we are on par with Albania, and we're about a year behind Cuba in terms of life expectancy. And projections indicate that it's not going to get much better. So by 20 40, the U.S. is projected to fall to 64th place in the world. Uh, you may have heard that we've not only seen life expectancy stagnate in this country, but it's actually been declining since 2014. 
So these troubling signs aren't no, are new. We've known about them for over a decade. Lots of scholars have been trying to um, explain it. Um, there's been expert panels commissioned by the National Research Council that have tried to explain it. And by and large, most of this work has focused on individual level behaviors as an explanation. So in other words, what are Americans doing wrong? Why are they living such unhealthy lifestyles? Why are they making such bad choices? So our research team um, is reacting to that and, and changing the narrative and saying, actually, we need to be looking at the legal and the policy environment in the U.S. and how that has changed over the same time period and how those policies and those laws have contributed to this life expectancy crisis that we're in at the moment. So we have brought in a political scientist into our team of sociologists and demographers and a physician to integrate all of our data on um, life expectancy at the U.S. state level um, and a list of 135 different state policies and how they've changed since the 70s. And what we have discovered is, you know, we're able to track the change in state policies as a key and pretty profound driver of this troubling trend in life expectancy. Effectively, what we're finding is that states that have moved in a more conservative direction on a number of policies, namely abortion, gun control, um, environment, um, those are the states that are seeing pretty remarkable declines in life expectancy. States that have taken the opposite route, so they're moving more liberal, um, and those policies have seen their life expectancy skyrocket. And in fact, in those states, life expectancy is on par with world leaders. So what all of these findings point to is that there is a huge role for the changing legal and policy environment in the U.S. in explaining this crisis and that we do have the answers then on how to correct it because we have states that are making really smart choices. And if we were to emulate those in the U.S., we project that we could increase life expectancy by two to three years almost um, instantaneously. I know that you didn't have an economist on, on the team. And I, because, uh, I, I say that because your work brings to mind Case and Deaton's work on diseases of despair because of my own research interests uh, in, in opioids, in particular opioid use disorder. I want to know what kind of uh, interlocking or interconnection there was between uh, the kind of work that they came up with and their reflections on the labor markets uh, 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 compared or combined with your reflections. Right. So this is a great point. So there are a lot of economists working in this area and we're all uh, you know, collaborating as much as possible and sharing our work with each other and sharing hypotheses. And um, many of us are part of a larger national network that we meet uh, periodically and discuss these ideas. So one of the uh, interesting um, signs in the, the life expectancy trouble is that women, and particularly low educated women, have been the canary in the coal mine the entire time. So the life expectancy decline started with women, it started with low educated women, the growing inequality in life expectancy across states started with women. So when we think about you know, where the, the troubling signs are the most pronounced, our hypotheses also need to be... Uh, in line with that. So what are the issues that are affecting women much more so than are affecting men? And, and white think, women primarily. Or does again, your research suggest it's, it's broader? It's broader. So white women and black women have seen life expectancy declines, um, depending on the, the time periods that you're examining. Uh, but life expectancy declines among white women have been much more pronounced. 
So, but again, we think that this is a canary in the coal mine scenario because the decline also used to be limited to adults without a high school credential. Then it became a decline among adults with a high school credential, and now we're seeing it among adults with some college but not a bachelor's degree. So the problem is getting worse, and it's affecting more and more segments of the population. So we think that it's about more than just the labor market. Back to your original question, the labor market and the decline of unions and labor rights is a big part of the story,、uh, but the story is bigger than that. Wendy, you ended by talking perhaps a little more meta about a wedge issue or the wedge issues that we have, and、uh, with Rachel here representing sort of reproductive rights. You talk about immigration. I think、uh, the three of us are interested in sort of demographics associated with opioid use disorder and so on, which brings with it another sort of wedge issue of of,、uh, of pointing out that there are parts of the population that have moral defects, right? That explain certain behaviors and things like that. More reflections on that as an idea. How did how did we how did we Devolve into a a, a place of of wedge issues. I think we can look backwards and say, to some extent, we've always been there, right?、Um, you know, we've always been a country that has been, you know, we're commemorating the 400th anniversary of slavery in North America this year. So, you know, to some extent, it's always been there. But I do think there are periods where the politics of division are more predominant than at other times, and I think we are in a, certainly a period of heightened. Divisiveness by all measures, polarization, partisanship, tribalism—you know, there's a diff- lots of different ways you can talk about it, lots of different ways you can code it, but they're all pointing in the same direction right now. Jennifer's recent comments, you know, point to the fact that different states are going in different directions. In、um, important ways. So, how did we get there? I don't think I have the answers in in the meta way. I, I think we, you know, I'm interested in how we can understand how those politics. Can impact health, and maybe how we can reverse that. But the broader question about why—I mean, ultimately, the, the largest question is why are human beings susceptible, right, to this level of divisiveness? You know, why are we such tribal creatures, and why are people—and this is for me the health issue, right? Why are people willing at times to buy into? To policies that may actually harm their own health because it hurts someone else even more, right? And I think that it's pretty. We have at least some good evidence, not you know solid, that people are often willing to do that.、Um, and I just sort of an aside. I started reflecting on this, if we can recall the debates about the Affordable Care Act in 2010, and, and one of the larger、um, criticisms that were made at those very 
raucous town hall meetings in 2010 about the predecessor plan for the ACA was, you know, that it was going to cover undocumented immigrants. And what was so fascinating is rather than asking what's in it for me, people were, damn, they're going to get it, right? That it's more important to keep them out than for me to do something that might improve the health access of my family. It was actually quite surprising, but it was very powerful. And so I, I think we need to understand that phenomenon to some extent. You know, we can do a lot of policy surveillance and we can do legal epidemiology and we can understand what laws and interventions will help health and what won't. But we need to understand how to have those, right, how to have those health promoting laws be enacted and how to stop or mitigate the tribalism from undermining the ability to have enact policies that are promoting of health. And I think also at some point we're going to have to unpack whether the, the, the tribalism is, is based on self-interest or the interest of somebody else not gaining. But to an extent it's based on that or more just on more rhetorical uh, flourishes uh, by some politicians. How deep-seated, in other words, is this? Um, or or it, is this tend to be more in flux depending upon more sort of base uh, changes. Yeah, one way to think about it is to think that the capacity for that is always there, Mm -hmm. but it can be triggered more or less depending upon the political climate, depending upon the rhetoric, depending upon leadership, depending upon the capacity to do coalition building across groups. But, you know, from every way, Americans are sorting themselves now, right? Our political parties did not used to be easily defined by our demographics. Our location, you know, pretty much right now from zip code, you can tell pretty much everything else you need to know about something. So we're, we're sorting ourselves in ways that make it harder and harder, I think, to find a politics that is supportive of population health in in a broader sense. So you talk about sorting, Jennifer, you talked about segmentation from from a, uh, a research perspective. When you teach health policy, I mean, one of the things I think is striking about our healthcare system is the level of segmentation, that we keep on finding new ways of, of of slicing up the population. You know, it used to be just there was Medicaid and then were and Medicare and there were people in group health. Well, now we have Medicaid expansion and then we have the individual market that's resuscitated, but within that resuscitation we have segmentation based on whether you are going to just get subsidies or whether you're also going to get cost-sharing reductions. And then each of those will have some sort of uh, income tag or something. So it, 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 it's almost as though in an attempt to defragment our system, we actually increase fragmentation in some ways. Is, is that something that you have ruminate on? Sure. And I think... Uh, I think that also leads into our political problems. And, and I think even just the diagnosis that, that Jennifer provides, 140 policies having this sort of textured effect on health, um, my goodness, what do people do with that? I, you know, I, I think really broadly, one challenge, and I see this with students all the time, things are so complex to respond to your question. And many students, a, a medical student, will just feel like, I can't be a participant in the policymaking process. It's just too complex. And 
you can understand how people out in the community have the same reaction and they default to these proxies, which which are a convenient sort, sorting mechanism and it, it cuts through the complexity. You don't have to think about it, right? Which is hard for us to think about. I think that's a challenge for government, broadly speaking, which is that the complexity alienates people and they feel it feels like an alien system that's hard to participate. So just to end, because time is always short, but as researchers, often as we go into a topic or an area, um, there is often that sort of one piece out there, that, that, that piece of knowledge, that, that answer, that piece of research that is hard to sort of grasp, that, that one that always seems a little bit out of, uh, out of reach. Uh, do you, in, in the context of legal epi and, and the discussions here, is there, is there something that you would love to be able to just say, ah, I have this data set or I have this answer. This is really going to help me sort of in the next sort of jump in where I want to go. I think if I could have my wish, it would be to come up with a some sort of very short menu of policies that we could recommend in good faith that would have a material impact on life expectancy. That if we were to somehow have all of the data needed to do that, I think that would be immensely beneficial for science and for the population. I think a huge challenge that people in public health aren't comfortable with is that meaning and purpose are really important to, to people's health and wellness. And I still am not sure that we know the legal levers that actually move meaning and purpose at the population level. Related to that, I think sometimes we fool ourselves into assuming that our goals are the goals of people out there on the streets, right? The people whose health we care about. And we assume the buy-in. And if we just had the right evidence and we knew how to tell the story and show them, if you do this, it will help you or your children will be healthier. But in fact, it's complicated and life's messy and people have different values. And understanding that, I think, is both humbling for us, but also important if we want to improve health to understand where other people are at. And that was the Week in Health Law. Thank you so much to my guests for joining us. Uh, Rachel isn't on Twitter, but of course you can find uh, the Public Center for Public Health Law Research at at PHLR. Uh, underscore temple wendy you are sometimes on w-p-a-i-m-e-t at w-p-a as i recall evan evan says no no tweeting for me jennifer at jen caris montez rachel thanks so much for the invitation and thank you for joining as co-host i hope you will will come back to the show again i'd be delighted and thank you so much for uh, for dedicating a podcast to the symposium thank you all so much great fun having you show notes of course are at tool.com i am at nicholas terry on twitter thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week <laughs>